Welcome to Infinite Possibilities, Rise from the Ashes of Your Past, a show where emotional health and resiliency are the keys to moving through all that stuff from your past that's holding you back in your life, business, and relationships, and hijacking the success you desire. Listen in and feel empowered to step into all of your possibilities. Now here's your host, Susan Desenzi. Welcome back to another episode of Infinite Possibilities. I am so happy to still be here and so happy that you're still here because emotional freedom and emotional mastery is critical, as I've said in in multiple episodes, to you really being able to step into who you are meant to be, rise from the ashes of your past, whatever that may mean for you, and really dive into what juices you, what brings you happiness and joy and allows you to step into your full potential and possibility. As you know by now, I am all about infinite possibilities within everybody. And it's no different today. Today we're going to spend a little bit of time tying up the last two foundational episodes where we really started to lay a little bit of the base foundation for how we take the world in. And the reason that I share all of this with you is because if you don't understand how we take the world in in the first place, you're never going to be able to master this emotional roller coaster that you're on in this adulting phase of your life. Now, I know that as a therapist and a coach through now 23 years, I've had a lot of people come into my office through the years and say things like, Hey, are you going to have me sit on the couch and tell you my whole life history and blame everything on mom and dad? And my answer was always no. We are a sum of all the experiences that we've had up to this point in our life, but it's not a question of blaming anybody else. It's a question of learning how to take the experiences that you've had, how your mind and brain filtered all of those experiences and created meanings and associations, attaching the emotional labels to them, again, remember within the context of that story, and then it kind of ingrained it in you, in your conscious and your subconscious, as what we would call limiting beliefs or ideas or thoughts that you have about yourself or the world around you. And so today, we're really going to be tying in those first two foundational pieces. And there's a whole lot more to this infinite possibilities framework that I've been teaching for years and years and years. But it's really difficult, you know, to go into just in these short periods of time in each episode. So I wanted to give you a base foundation so we could really then in future episodes start addressing particular emotions or situations or problems. And again, for that, I'll need some of your help. Hopefully you'll write to me and you'll let me know what's working, what's not working, what's confusing, what's not confusing, what's helping, what's not helping. And you'll share with me some of the experiences that you've had that you're struggling with. Like, Sue, how do I deal with this? Or how do I deal with that? I have dealt with this thought or feeling or behavior for so long. And I have read self-help books and done lots of self-developmental work and maybe even done some therapy and counseling and talked to some coaches or friends or family. And I'm still stuck and I'm still struggling. So let's kind of dive in. If you remember 
during the first two episodes that were the foundational parts one and two, I talked about how, and I'll recap here for just a few minutes, I talked about how the nature and the goal of our brain is the same. It's survival. Again, the brain doesn't know what's real. We understand that from research now. And if your mind tells the brain that something is real, your brain will treat it as real, regardless of whether it really is or isn't. And so because our base nature and goal within the brain of the body is survival, then the brain will always act from a place of survival. Pretty simple. And I talked about how the mind takes the world in through these associations, through these experiences, and how the mind, our nature in this consciousness side, is to love and to be loved. That is our inherent nature as a human being from the time we're born till the time we die. We often lose that nature due to those experiences, though. And our goal from this mind consciousness side is some form of feedback. Remember, that's validation or acceptance, approval, acknowledgement, awareness. And so it's something as simple as I'm walking down the street and you're passing me by. We're strangers to each other. I don't know you. And I make eye contact with you for a moment and I smile at you. Let's say you smile back. Even if you didn't, me smiling at you and noticing you is giving you feedback that I have seen you. I have seen you as this human being on this planet passing me by in that moment. And I have acknowledged you by making eye contact and potentially by smiling at you. That's feedback. So feedback doesn't have to be verbal. Remember that. All right. I talked about last week in part two of the foundation that what happens though is that there's those two pieces that are in competition with each other, that hope for gain and that fear of loss. And I want to go into a little bit more of that today because it can be a bit of a difficult concept for many people to really grasp because they're thinking in terms of this major hope or want or need or desire versus this big, huge fear or loss. And sometimes those fears can be very, very subtle. So let's dive in a little bit more to that right now. So let's say, for example, that I am, let's see, let's say I am 16 years old and I like a boy. Have you ever noticed, whether you're male or female, have you ever noticed that when you kind of notice someone that you you kind of seem attracted to, all of a sudden you start to have thoughts like, oh gosh, I hope that my hair looks okay, or I hope that the shirt I'm wearing doesn't look too sloppy or messed up, or I hope I don't say anything stupid, or I wonder if she'll like me, or I wonder if he'll call me like he said he would. Or I wonder if she'll show up at, at, at our date tonight, right? Those are all parts of the fear of loss. So they're not major fears like, oh, I'm so terrified that somebody's following me or, oh, I'm in a dark alley in an unknown city by myself and I'm scared of what will happen. It's not that kind of fear. It's this fear of loss that says, I want one thing. I want them to notice me or to like me or to give me approval or feedback of some kind that says, 
they're feeling the same way I am, or they're noticing me as I'm noticing them. And what if I don't? What if I don't get that feedback? What if they reject me? What if they dismiss me? What if they don't pay attention to me? So this fear of lost place that we all operate from, these are the only two drivers that drive human behavior. Now, that may be a bit of a controversial statement in saying that, but remember, we're hardwired to move toward pleasure and away from pain. And because we're hardwired to move away from pain and we want to avoid it at any cost, that right there is a hope for gain. The wantingness, right? I want to avoid pain. I'm hoping that I don't feel pain of any kind. I hope that I'm not rejected. I hope that I'm not dismissed. I hope that I'm heard by the people around me when I speak to them. I hope my boss acknowledges my hard work. I hope that when I ask for a raise, they they at least consider or tell me they'll think about it. I hope to get to my destination on time. Do you see how, again, there could be a thousand million different scenarios that you could plug into that. And then within that, fear of loss says, what if I don't get it? What if this thing doesn't happen? Or, you know, I want to lose weight by, by one month from now when I have this wedding to go to and I need to lose 10 or 15 pounds. I really want to fit into this beautiful dress that I saw that's really adorable. What happens if I don't make my goal? Will I be able to find a dress that's equal in the way that I like the way it looks on me or the cost or the color or again, whatever the scenario may be? So in this fear of loss that is part of the driver to us as human beings, this is where we start to learn those different associations that have created a negative feeling or thought, and it gets kind of ingrained and stuck in our consciousness and in our sub and unconsciousness. And it will still be driving us. So let's fast forward to you're 30 years old, and you're married, and you have children, and you ask your child to go pick up their room. Let's say you have a seven-year-old, and your seven-year-old has pulled out all their toys and they've made a mess of their room and you ask them to go clean it up. Now, this is a typical parenting thing, right? We want our children to learn these responsibilities and and these accountabilities for their own toys and their own environment, such as their room. And so we ask them the simple question of, hey, Joe, go clean up your room. And little Joe is defiant and says, no, I don't want to. I'm still playing. Well, right there in that exchange, there was a hope for gain. I want Joe to clean up his room. And Joe said, no, I don't want to yet. I'm still playing. And so as a parent, we look at that and it's it's this loss piece that we're not getting what we asked for, which was the Joe going and cleaning up his room. Instead, what we got was that Joe chose not to. So I want to really point out and be clear on the fact that this hope for gain and fear of loss concept does not have to equal these 
big gains and these big losses. It can be as subtle as the parent asking their child to go clean up their room. And as our children grow, let's say, and as we grew as children, our parents and we as parents, we learn that our children are getting it, are going to be okay, essentially, when they follow our rules, right? Hey, Donna, make sure that you come home by 10 o'clock at night. If Donna comes home by 10 o'clock at night, there's like a sigh of relief in the parent that says, oh, Donna is responsible and Donna is following the rules and Donna will be okay because she's come home when she's been asked to come home. And that can translate as we grow older, as our children grow older, I should say, into this knowledge that we will have as parents that says, oh, when Donna is in college, if she's asked to complete an assignment on time, because she has shown me so many other times that she came in on time, or she did her homework on time, or she made her bed when I asked her to, that chances are high that when she's out on her own, she will follow the rules of the game of life, right? She'll complete her assignments for college, or she'll show up to work on time, and she'll pay her bills on time, and things like that. Well, when we're children, though, we don't care about that stuff. When we're children, especially when we're very little, all we care about is exploring. All we care about is experiencing the world. And we're trying to figure out who we are and how we fit into the world. And so when we're asked these things by the adults and the people around us who are in our life caring for us, teachers, friends, family, parents, caregivers, grandparents, whomever, when we hear kind of these, you know, questions or we hear them asking us to do things, we sometimes have our own thought or opinion or feeling about that. And we may disregard what these people have asked of us. And it can sometimes throw us into a loop of not really understanding who we are because we feel like we're just living their lives, right? They want us to do these things. They have these rules. They have these ways of parenting us or teaching us, whether it's, again, a, a parent or a teacher, let's say. Let's just take those two as an example, a parent and a teacher. Those are two predominant people that are in most young people's lives, right? Is their caregivers and their teachers. And so because we spend the majority of our time either in our family units with our parents or our caregivers or at school with teachers and peers, those are kind of the two major experiences that when we're of school age, we're really involved in for potentially what, 12 years from kindergarten through senior of high school, right? And so because we're trying to figure out who we are and what all this stuff that we're experiencing means in the world, when people ask us to do things, we're often feeling like we're just doing what they want and what they're expecting and what they say we should be doing versus maybe what we really want. Now, going back to the hope for gain, it's great that we have these wants when we're children because we have a lot of them. And most children probably would never really want to go to school. Some really love school and like to go, but there are many who don't. 
And yet we still go because we're supposed to, right? And then as we grow older and we get a job or we're an adult, we're supposed to work in order to make money, in order to live and be on our own. Well, when we're young and we're beginning to learn these associations, like if you remember last week, I talked about the kindergarten example of little Susie who is standing there on the stage getting ready to do the kindergarten play. And she's really fidgety and she's really, you know, feeling the butterflies in her tummy. And maybe she's feeling a little hot and sweaty. And the teacher came over and asked her what was going on. And she was able to describe that. And the teacher grabbed her hand and said, it's okay, honey, you're just nervous and scared. It'll be all right. And little Susie learned that those physical sensations she was feeling in her body were called nervous and scared. And then the brain stored it away in the little nervous folder and the little scared folder, only for the mind to recall it later, like pull it out of its little file folder drawer, whenever little Susie had any other experiences that physically felt similar, like the fidgetiness and the butterflies in her tummy and maybe the hot and the sweaty feeling. And then her mind pulled that out and said, oh, yes, this is similar. So guess what? You're nervous and scared. Now, all of this happens instantaneously. The brain is, is a supercomputer, essentially, and you have to think of the brain as the computer and the mind as like the data entry operator. So when we're children and we're having these experiences going to school, being told to do homework, being told to clean up our, our rooms, you know, go to this function, get involved in this sport. We're also given language pieces that tell us we're either good enough or we're not good enough. Like, for example, let's say you're a young boy and you want to be in t-ball. And you're very little, five, six, seven years old, right? And you're in t-ball or little league. And you really love the game of baseball. And you're doing your best. You're just learning this game and you're standing up there to bat and you're trying to hit the little ball, whether it's t-ball off the tee or you're being pitched to and you keep missing. And maybe your parents are there with you watching your practice or your game or the coach. And all of a sudden they're saying things like, you know, keep your eyes on the ball and watch where your feet are and make sure that you stand like this and hold the bat like that. And if you do all those things, but you still miss the ball and very rarely hit it, all of a sudden you might start getting some criticism. You might start getting the people that are in your life, like your parents or the coach, saying things like, you're not paying enough attention or you're too distracted. I, I saw you looking over there when the ball was pitched to you. You need to keep your eye on the ball in order to be able to hit it. And as children, we're just trying to have fun, have these experiences and do the best we can. We don't know that what we're doing isn't, quote unquote, good enough for somebody else. We just know that we're having fun and we're learning this thing, this, this sport. And let's say you're a little girl in T-ball. It could be the same. So this isn't gender specific. You could be 
wanting to take dance classes and you're trying your hardest to learn the little routine that the teacher is trying to teach you and the class and you keep quote unquote messing up in a certain spot and you just are having trouble getting that one move down. And maybe for a while, the people around you are very supportive and loving and encouraging, like, don't worry, Susie, you'll get this. Just keep practicing. But let's say you've been practicing for a while now, and you still can't master that move. Well, now you might get words from other people like, you're not trying hard enough, or you're not paying enough attention. So again, it's the same. It doesn't it doesn't matter the gender, it doesn't matter the activity. What will happen in your mind is that your mind, which has given it the label of not enoughness or making mistake or failing at something or being distracted, whatever those language pieces are, your mind will give it that label, your brain will store it away. And every time you experience something similar again, your mind will say, oh, see, you're still being distracted. Oh, see, you're not paying enough attention. And what your mind will then do is equate it to not being enough. And that's part of that fear of loss, that I'm losing out on the fact that I am not mastering this move or being able to hit the ball or this math class, that no matter how hard I try, even if I go and get help from the teacher, let's say for like math or something, which is often something that trips a lot of people up, that must mean I'm stupid. So do you hear the language? That must mean. But if you remember what I talked about last week in part two, where I talked about how the meanings that we learn to give things when we are children, very little, like from babyhood into toddlerhood, up until, well, throughout our whole lives, but especially up until in, you know, like five, six year old range, we are learning to give meanings to everything. So you can't obviously see me right now in this moment, but pick up a pen. Look at that pen or a pencil if you have something handy around you. You were taught that this instrument, this structure is called a pen or a pencil. And that when you take the cap off the end of the pen or you click the, the top of it, this little piece will come out the bottom and you will be able to put that on paper and write and, and have ink come out. You were taught that was called a pen. But let's say I take this same object, this pen that we call a pen, to a village, I don't know, somewhere across in Europe where they've never seen a pen before, and I ask them what it's called. They may not have the word pen to describe that thing, that object. And when I show them how it works and what it does and that ink comes out of it and on paper or on, you know, a wall or, or some writing surface or some kind of surface that will absorb this ink, I can make pictures or letters with this ink and they see that they might call it, um, a brush 
They might call it a, you know, like a brush that an artist would use to paint with. They might call it a stick. They might call it any number of things. So we can't make an assumption that everybody has the same language for the experiences they've had. Really, what that's saying is they they don't have the same meaning. And what happens is our filters, how we view the world, are very unique and individual. So you can have siblings in your household that you grew up with, and let's say there are three of you, and you can all have had very similar experiences with your family with your parents or your caregivers while you were growing up, but that does not indicate that you will all give the same meaning to those experiences. So let's take twins, for example. Let's say you are a young man in your early 20s, early mid-20s, and you meet two twin women, and you find them just absolutely beautiful and they're smart, and they're funny, and you find that you are attracted to one of the twins. Have you ever thought about why you'd be attracted to one of the twins and not the other one? There's that something about that particular person that attracts you. So if you're, you know, someone who likes a particular type of person, let's say a uh, you know, a dark-haired uh, person. Let's say you're a woman, and you're you you tend to like dark-haired men who are six feet tall. Well, does that mean that every six-foot man who has dark hair you'll be attracted to? No. Some you will, and some you won't. Same for if you're a man and you tend to like women who are, you know. 5'2 to 5'7, and they have, you know, light brown hair and blue eyes, or you like blondes or, you know, brunettes or redheads or whatever, whether you're male or female. Just because there's some particular meaning you have doesn't indicate that it will translate across all of your experiences and mean the same thing. So, how do we really then begin to understand this hope for gain and fear of loss piece as it applies to our own life? How do we really understand how to dismantle it? How do we begin to break that down? Well, in laying these first, you know, few episodes and laying this foundation down of how we take the world in, because the meanings are very different, you have to begin to be aware of what your own filters are. And again, this whole framework is really involved, and it's a little bit challenging to kind of give you just the basics in these first few episodes, but we have to start somewhere. So I have this nature to love and be loved, and I have this goal of feedback. And then within that, there are these two competing pieces of this hope for gain in the sphere of loss. And I start to kind of then ask myself, well, what are the things that I'm afraid of? As I asked you to look at last week, right? Look at your kind of ideal life or your ideal self 
and look and see where you're at with that. If I have experienced, let's say, especially traumas, which I'm going to go into in a couple of episodes, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into trauma because trauma isn't necessarily what you think it is. Trauma has typically meant, there's that meaning word again, it's meant like a big, severe kind of loss and trauma experience, right? Like a, like a sexual assault or being a victim of a crime or going through like a, like a natural disaster or a fire or a car accident, things like that. But trauma can also be, and again, I'll get into this in, in a few episodes from now in a few weeks, trauma can also be, I lost my dog when I was 12, or we moved when I was eight, and I had to leave all my friends, or my parents got divorced, or my parents fought all the time, and I grew up in a household where there was a lot of anger and a lot of yelling and fighting, or I grew up in a household where they never talked. I never once saw them kiss. My parents never said, I love you to me, or I never got my father's approval or my mother's approval. That can be trauma as well. And so, especially when we have trauma, what happens then is that we are so afraid that we will experience that negative feedback again that trauma, have that trauma experience and feel those levels of pain, that we start to become really afraid of the trauma. And that then dictates our behavior going forward. So a simple way to look at that is, again, let's go back to, I'm 16 years old, and I like this boy, and he likes me, and we start dating in high school, and we become high school sweethearts. And we're very much in love. And if you remember when you were a teenager, if you ever fell in love when you were a teenager, do you remember thinking that that person was going to be the person that you would absolutely spend the rest of your life with? And when your family or, or friends told you, oh, come on, you know, most people don't stay with their first love. Most people you know, especially when you're in high school, you're going to date a lot of different people. And this was, this is just your first boyfriend or girlfriend. There will be many more. And you are adamant. No way. This is the love of my life. I will be with him or her forever. We will get married when we're in college or after high school or after college. And we envision our whole future already together. I could never see myself with anybody else ever said that kind of stuff to to yourself? I think probably all of us have, whether it was about a relationship or some other experience we had, we were absolutely convinced that this was the person or the thing or the job or the career or the place we were living that we could, we will always be at or always be involved in. We could never see ourselves in some other situation or with some other person. But ultimately, probably what happened, you and your high school sweetheart probably didn't stay together, and you ultimately probably ended up with somebody else somewhere down the road, just as they did. And yet, when we're first with that person, and we're feeling all of those feelings, 
And we convince ourselves that this is the person I will spend the rest of my life with, and I will never be able to see myself with anybody else. We then put all of our hopes and gains, our wants, our needs, our desires into that relationship. And when it ends, we feel that pain of the loss. We feel the pain of that ending. And then we become so afraid of never wanting to feel that level of pain again, that it then dictates how we behave in the future. So we break up. Let's say I go into college then at that point, and now I'm, let's say, 20, and I've met somebody else. Now I find that I'm being a little cautious. I'm being a little closed off with my heart. I really like this person, but I'm afraid of what if it doesn't work out? What if we're together and we really love each other again, just like before, and then I get hurt again? So maybe I take a chance and date this person, but I stay cautious and reserved and a little bit closed off about it. Or maybe I'm so scared of that that I choose not to even date. I choose to not even take the risk or the chance that I could get hurt again. And so I kind of close myself off to that. And so these meanings that we've learned to give things through our life's experiences from childhood on up become the things that drive and dictate us on on what we choose and how we will behave in future situations, whether they're identical or even similar. And once we hold a belief about something, it's very difficult to change that belief. It's not impossible, of course, but it's very difficult. Let me give you one of the prime examples that I used to use all the time with my clients and with friends and family, and even in my own life as I reflected and learned to move through my own shit. Let's say you were born in a family where you believed in Santa Claus. You were taught from a, from birth that Santa Claus was real and that every Christmas season, the Santa Claus would come to your home and leave gifts under the tree for you at your home. And you grew up for a period of years believing that Santa flew in a sleigh with reindeer that could fly. And this was, this lie was perpetuated by even many others, like news reporters, right? You watch the news on Christmas Eve, and every news outlet would say things like, We've had a sighting. Let's say you live in Chicago. Let's say the Chicago news station at the 10 o'clock news. They would come on and they'd be like, oh, we've had a sighting of Santa Claus over downtown. Oh, we've had a sighting that Santa Claus is only about 50 miles away. And you would have been told things like, you have to make sure that you go to bed because if you're awake, Santa won't come. And, and, you know, Santa will eat the cookies and the milk that you put out for him and will read the letter that you wrote for him. And as long as you're a good person and you're on the good list and not the naughty list, Santa won't leave you coal in your stocking, but he'll bring you presents. And so you learn to believe that this Santa Claus being was real. And then somewhere in your youth, 
maybe seven, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, you had a first experience where you learned Santa wasn't real. When I used to ask my clients this, I came to find that there were about 10 ways that we always kind of learned Santa wasn't real. And I won't go into all, all of them because it's really not important, but some of the ways might be that you found the gifts that were labeled from Santa Claus in your home, in a closet somewhere, in a hiding place, or you caught your parents putting those those gifts under the tree, or you heard them rustling those gifts as they were getting them out from their hiding place to put them under the tree, or you saw that the handwriting was the same on the label of your gift where it said from Santa Claus, you saw that that handwriting was the same as your mom or dad's or the caregiver that that took care of you. And there's many, many other ways. Or somebody told you that Santa wasn't real. And because we believed that Santa was real for a period of years, and that belief was ingrained in us, our first response when we hear something that counters a belief we have is always going to be something like, "Uh uh-uh, no way, can't be true. And, And this holds true for anything. So if I believe that as a a woman, I quote unquote should be a wife and a mother and have children and raise the children and and stay at home and take care of the house and the family, like you know, back in the 50s and the 40s, and there are still many people who who like to live like that, and that's perfectly fine. That's awesome that to each of their own. But let's say I grew up believing that that was what I was supposed to do when I grew older. Then the first time somebody comes to me and says, oh, Sue, you shouldn't do that. You should be your own woman. You should be a career woman and have a career and be independent and travel the world. My first response internally in my mind is going to be, uh-uh, that's not, that's not what I believe. Okay, so back to Santa. I just, I just wanted to point that out so that you're aware that sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time, when you have a belief that's very ingrained and you hold that belief very strongly inside of you, and it is a, a really deeply ingrained belief in you, the very first time somebody or an experience counters that belief, you're going to have difficulty with accepting that other side because that belief is so strong in you. And we'll get into the whole idea of how limiting beliefs and negative beliefs, how that all plays out within this understanding, you know, in a future episode as well. All right. So I believe that Santa's real. And then I have this first experience that says Santa's not real. And my response is no way, uh uh, can't be true. So maybe I'm curious enough and wondering if that statement was true or not. I know I believe in Santa Claus, but my gosh, for the first time I'm hearing that Santa's not real. So now I'm curious. So maybe I go home and I ask my parents or my caregivers if that's true. And maybe they still lie to me because I'm still young and they don't want me to lose the magic of that feeling of believing in Santa Claus. So maybe they still lie to me. Or maybe they tell me the truth. Either way, it doesn't really matter. But let's say for this example, 
they still lie to me and say that Santa is real. Okay, I'm going to disregard this new information I heard that Santa's not real, but I'm going to keep it in the back of my head. I'm going to continue believing that Santa's real, but there's that little tiny thought now in the back of my head, that little seed that was planted that says, you might be wrong. Santa might not really be real. And I won't question it again until I have another experience that says Santa's not real. Whether someone else tells me that Santa's not real, or I go through one of those common ways that I find out Santa's not real, like I catch my parents that next Christmas putting the presents under the tree. Because see, now I'm curious, right? I believed all these years that Santa was real. I had no reason to doubt it or question it. But now that the seed has been planted, now I'm going to be curious to find out if that's really true or not. And because my parents told me that Santa is still real, this Christmas, I might be on the search for the presents, or I might be on the hunt to catch them. I might pretend that I'm asleep, but I kind of wake up or never really go to sleep and I hear movement and I peek out of around a corner or around out of my door or however I would see that. And I actually see my parents putting the presents under the tree. Or like I said, somebody else tells me that Santa's not real. Now I've had two experiences that tell me Santa's not real. And I don't really know what to do with that information because my belief is that Santa is real. So maybe again, I go to my parents and I say, look, I really want to know the truth. Is Santa real or not? And maybe now they finally tell me that Santa's not real. This example isn't necessarily about whether or not you believe in Santa Claus, but this is a perfect example of how when we're born or when we're very, very little, like babyhood and toddler age little, we can develop a belief and how we will hold that belief for a very long time many years maybe, until we start to have new experiences that challenge that old belief. But the problem here is that I still, as this young child now, don't know what to do with the new information. Now I've had a couple of experiences that says Santa's not real, and I'm not really sure how to kind of deal with this information. And so what happens is I continue to, to look for new experiences that teach me that Santa is or isn't real. So now let's say I have a few more experiences where I've asked other people if Santa's real and they tell me no, or however I find out, I become convinced that Santa is not real after all. What I've learned to do now is I've learned to adapt and adopt, adapt, and adopt the new belief that Santa is not real. But I can't just wipe out the old belief. The remnants of the old belief are still there. Think about it as an adult. Why do you think if you grew up believing in Santa Claus, and again, if you're not of that religious faith where you practiced Christmas as a holiday, plug in whatever experience you may have had as a child that was same or similar. 
It could have been the Easter Bunny. It could have been the Tooth Fairy. It could have been any number of things that you grew up with believing in. And then you found out later that it was not true. So now as an adult, why do you think at the holiday time, when Christmas lights start being put up and Christmas music starts to be played and you know Christmas shopping starts to happen and the stores are filling up with Christmas items and decorations, why do you think you can still recall that magic and that feeling of when you were a child and you believed in Santa Claus? You're an adult now and logically know that Santa Claus is not real, but there's a part of you that still holds that belief to be true. It remembers when it was true. And so you can feel that magic still. You can feel what that feeling was like when you were young, even though your adult mind now knows that that is actually not a truth. It's the same for every emotion. It's the same principle for every belief that you have learned to believe about yourself or your life when it is very ingrained in you, like you grew up in a household where there was a lot of fighting and a lot of criticism, and you grew up feeling like you were not good enough. And again, especially if you dealt with any kind of traumas as a child, if you grew up in an abusive house, if you grew up in a very negative home, you are going to have a great difficulty countering those negative thoughts and beliefs that you hold about yourself and even other people and the world around you just because you have a couple of new experiences that tell you what you believe isn't true. You can have people telling you, oh my God, Sue, you're amazing. You are so valuable and worthy. But if you don't believe it, down deep, no matter what others say to you, it's not going to change your mind about yourself until you have enough new experiences that really help you to understand and show you and help you to feel that new feeling and that the old feeling was not really true. And this is one of the reasons why. Oftentimes, saying affirmations doesn't work that well. And again, as I said in an earlier episode, affirmations are great and can be extraordinarily helpful in a lot of situations and in a lot of ways. But if you start there, if you have a negative thought or belief or feeling about yourself or your life, like, I can't do this, I'm not trained, I'm not certified in this, I don't have the experience, or I'm broke, I don't have any money, I'm poor, I'm never going to be able to afford that. If you hold those beliefs about yourself, then putting up little sticky notes or saying affirmations in a mirror, you're enough. You have enough money. You can afford that. You're pretty. You're strong. You can do this. You have the skills and talent. Putting up those kinds of sticky notes or saying those kinds of affirmations aren't really going to help you if the down deep belief is still that Santa Claus is real. And so you may even, going back to Santa Claus for a second, because you adapted and adopted the new belief that Santa is not real. As you grow into adulthood, 
because you can remember what that felt like when you were a child and you loved that feeling, you loved that magic of believing in this, this Santa Claus being, you may perpetuate that lie for your own children, knowing it's a lie, but because the magic of their awe, of them waking up on Christmas morning, of them seeing the cookies in the milk having been eaten and drunk and the letter having been read, you know, Santa Claus's little, you know, fingerprint or something, because they see this evidence that Santa was actually there and you watch them in awe of their awe and you love to see that in your children, you may choose to perpetuate that lie for them. Well, it's the same thing in your life. That if you learn to believe that you weren't good enough and that the only way to deal with the pain of not feeling good enough was to go out and drink because that's what you saw other people in your family do when they had trouble handling something or when they had a difficult time coping with some part of their life was that they turned to the bottle to drink or they took pills or drugs or they they shopped or they worked excessively or they avoided and distracted and numbed out you're going to follow those same patterns and continue to believe that you're not enough or that you failed or that you made all these mistakes now that also begs the question then of but what happens if i did make these poor choices Meaning, what happens if I made these choices in my life and the outcome was negative, right? I took this job and I, I worked at this job for only a few months and then I ended up losing the job because I didn't fit in there well or the kind of work they wanted me to do was not something I really liked doing or I really didn't understand how to do it or I really didn't have the skill set for it. And darn it, I should have taken that other job. Why did I take this job? I should have taken the other job. Damn it, what was I thinking? I always make the wrong choice. I always screw up. Well, those are beliefs that you have about yourself that say you can't make right choices or you can't make good choices that will help move your life forward. And I'm, I'm here to offer up to you through today's kind of tying together these foundational pieces and through future episodes, whether it's through guests that I have on who talk about how they struggled and overcame something and moved into a place of thriving, or whether it's, you know, more time where I'm sharing different things of my life or different experiences of clients that I've had through the years of their lives, or whether it's one of you decide that you want to do some on-air live therapy and coaching with me directly, you'll learn how you can start to really dismantle those belief systems, those beliefs about yourself that say things like, I'm not enough, or I always screw up, or this is the only way I'm ever going to really deal with the pain is by engaging in this certain behavior. And Again, you don't have to engage in those behaviors if the outcomes that you're getting are painful or if there's a loss. Remember that fear of loss. There's only two things that drive human behavior, 
and that's that hope for gain and that fear of loss. I really wanted my dad to say he was proud of me, but he died and never told me that. Now how am I going to get that approval? Now how am I ever going to know if he was proud of me? And that feeling may drive everything I do from this point forward because, damn it, I want to do things in my life that if he was alive, it would have made him proud. And maybe, just maybe, I would have heard him say, I'm proud of you. Or I grew up in an atmosphere where my mother never really said good job. And she wasn't very loving or affectionate. Maybe she never ever calls me as an adult on her own. It's only when she wants something. And I'm always the one that has to call her and say, hey, how you doing, mom? What's going on? How are you? How's life? She never does that to me. And I just wish just once that she would call me out of the blue. And I wish just once out of the blue she would say, I love you for no reason. But I never get that from her. And Everything I do, when it comes to my mother then, or my interactions with my mother, may come from that place of hoping, wishing, wanting, there's the gain piece, for that love or that approval, that feedback. And because I may hang up the phone every time and never get that feedback, or I see her in person and I never get that feedback, it's going to continue to drive me and haunt me because I keep wanting that feedback. I hope that makes sense. This, again, is a very basic understanding of the infinite possibilities framework that I've been teaching for probably close to 30 years, even prior to becoming a therapist and a coach. And again, it started because of my own need to heal. It started because of my own choices and the things that were driving me into believing that I wasn't worthy and I wasn't valuable and that I didn't have anything to offer the world. And it was driving me to that place where I wanted to end my life. And I don't ever want to see that happen for anyone. Because again, I don't want to sound rah-rah cheerleader Sue here, which you'll learn very quickly about me. I will get in your face and tell you the tough stuff. I will always do it in a loving and compassionate and empathetic way. And so I'll be your cheerleader in that respect, but I cannot be inside of you. I'm not you, right? You have to choose that. And I don't want to be just like, Suck it up and be happy and put those affirmations up around your house and everything will be fine and just stuff it away because that's what's got us into this trouble. That's why in our world today, we're living in a very, very fear-based world. And we don't have to be. We really can live in a place of freedom and a place of real love and a place of real empathy and compassion and understanding and kindness. And again, just like when I was at the prison, it doesn't mean you're not still cautious and aware of the things around you and the people around you and what's going on in the world, but you're not letting it define you and tell you that that's who you are. So one of the ways that you can really take this framework then today and tie it together 
is start to write down what are the things that you're most afraid of? Like, I'm afraid I don't want to get hurt again, or I'm afraid that I might lose my job or my career one day and I would be homeless, or I'm afraid of being poor and broke, or I'm afraid of not having enough food, or I'm afraid that you know, my parents or my children may die before me, like what, whatever the fear might be for you. I'm afraid I won't live my dream. I'm afraid that I won't get this business off the ground and make money at it. I'm afraid that I won't ever write the book that I've been wanting to write for five years, 10 years, 50 years. I'm afraid I won't ever deal with the traumas that I have felt and lived through, whether they were, you know, criminal type traumas, whether they were from an accident or any of those kinds of traumas that we briefly talked about before, I'm afraid of of letting my past haunt me forever. I'm afraid that I will be locked into this role forever, or that I will never be happy, or that I will always deal with depression or anxiety or have this fear. Write down what your biggest fears are. And then write down, what is it that you hope for? What is it that you'd want to gain if you didn't have that fear? So to give you an example of, of where I've been at before is I was married once before. And although I loved him deeply, and he was a very charismatic, loving man on many levels, he was also an alcoholic. And he was very verbally and emotionally abusive especially when he drank. And I didn't realize when I met him at age 21 that there was a lot of insecurity still in me. I was a pretty strong, tough cookie. I had already been through five assaults by that point at age 21, and I had dealt with a lot of shit and came out pretty okay I was a kind person and compassionate and loving, and I was caring. I was funny. I laughed all the time. I really saw the world through very positive lenses, positive filters. But down deep, I didn't believe in myself, and I felt very unworthy and like I had no value. I felt very insecure. And I didn't realize that because, you know, I was acting so strong and I was living my life as the strong, confident woman. And I met my ex-husband, and he was this charismatic, loving, kind man who was quite a bit older than me. And we fell in love, and we had problems within the first couple of months, but I put the blinders on like most of us do because I'm in love, right? You know, nobody's going to tell me that this isn't going to work out. Nobody's going to tell me that this isn't the ideal relationship and that I should move on. Oh, hell to the no. I loved him. Nobody was going to tell me jack shit. And I stayed with him. And over time, little by little, being with him in that very verbally and emotionally abusive environment eroded my little bit of confidence and self-esteem and self-worth that I had that was left to where it got me to the point to when I was 28, like I said, the first episode, after the last assault that was very violent and I thought I would die that night. And then he said something a couple weeks later that cut me to the core. I just felt I couldn't go on anymore. And I felt that I didn't have the strength 
to deal with life anymore. And that was when I had made that decision to end my life. And then in making the decision to live, and I mean, I mean, really live from that point forward. When I made that decision to live, it wasn't just, okay, I don't, I'm not going to kill myself tonight. I'm, I'm going to live my life now from this point forward. It was literally that do or die decision. It was, if I'm going to live and make this choice from this point forward and put this letter away and not end my life tonight, then I'll be damned. I'm going to live to the best of my ability from this point forward. I'm going to jump off that cliff into life and figure it out, even if I have no freaking clue how to do that. And even if it scares the shit out of me, I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other, which is what I did. And so every single one of you, no matter what you've been through, can make that choice. The most important thing, though, is to be aware of what those beliefs are, what those fears are that you hold about yourself or your life or the world around you that are stopping you from stepping into your life, from jumping off your cliff into life and saying it's possible. And we will continue to dive into what's possible every episode. So write down your fears, write down what is it that you really want to gain if you didn't have that fear? What is it that you really want to see? And then the last thing I'm going to offer up to you to write about is what do you think? Just like last week where I'm asking you, what do you think was holding you back from your ideal life? What do you think is holding you back from yourself? Is it your childhood? Was it that you had a bad negative childhood? You had parents that didn't really show you a lot of love and affection. Is it that you had crappy experiences as a teenager? Is it that you had to deal with traumas of some kind? Is it that you're just afraid of making the wrong choice? Is it that you feel you have to do everything the right way in order to be good enough? And I hope that you'll reach out and you'll let me know what your thoughts are about all of this. And you'll let me know how it's working or not working for you. Because again, it's a little bit harder to explain, I think, when there isn't the absolute interaction right at the moment. But I know it's necessary if you want to stand in your power, become who you were meant to be. And really, truly rise from the ashes of your past. So have a phenomenal week. Reach out if you need anything at SusanDesenzi.com. Let me know your thoughts. And I'll see you next week. Ciao for now. You've been listening to Infinite Possibilities, Rise from the Ashes of Your Past, where you're letting go, discovering who you are, and taking your life back. See the show notes for important links on today's show and go to the infinitelypossible.com for free resources, feedback, or to let Susan know what you'd like to see on the show.